When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We want to empower you to create an amazing life for yourself by making tools available to everyone that were previously only known to high performers. And we've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you wanna know where to begin or find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm Live programs in LA, you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts here on the Art of Charm. We'll send you all the fundamentals like body language and nonverbal communication, vocal tonality, dating and attraction, persuasion, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, public speaking, and more. Pretty much all the stuff we wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss anything. And we've got our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you wanna learn and grow. Just a heads up, we're sold out five to six months in advance, so if you're even thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP and get some more info from us so you can plan ahead. Details on that at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp or give us a call in the office or email me. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. We read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with my friend Judah Pollock. We're gonna talk about hacking the genius inside your mind, something called imposter syndrome, which you've heard me mention before, why it works, what it is, and how we can short circuit it, and something called the default mode network and how to access it. Essentially, this is where you come up with all your great ideas. You know, when you're in the shower and you go, oh my God, that. We're also gonna talk about something called metacognition and the backlog of genius ideas inside your brain just waiting to be unlocked, drugs, psychedelics, and something called your novel associative state, and using nature to solve modern human problems. So enjoy this awesome episode with Judah Pollock. So tell me a little bit about, not a little bit, tell me a lot about what you do. <laughs> a lot about what I do. I basically work with people in groups who are having a difficult time in the world. Okay, that's very vague. It's very vague. I know it's hard to sometimes talk about it when you're, so technically I'm a consultant. So I come in to consult. Also very vague. Yes, I know. <laughs> and it, there's a reason consultant is very vague. And for those of you who are fans of the show House of Lies, it can sometimes look a little bit like that where your main job is to convince the client that you've actually done your job. Right. Uh, I hope that I'm not that kind of consultant. Um, I do a lot of work um, out here in Silicon Valley with some of the startup world. I do a lot of work uh, with nonprofits and I've done a lot of work, strangely enough, with the U.S. Army. And most of what it comes down to is you get more than a couple people in a room or in an office at any one time and things tend to go terribly wrong. Okay, like how so? Take your pick. It's either who moved my cheese or it's I cannot stand this person or you start spinning stories in your head that someone's out to get you mm -hmm. or any number of things. We've all lived through these office situations. I mean, sure. the office was successful, the show, for a reason. And it really kind of hit home for people that it was extreme, but that this is the experience. And the thing is, is it doesn't have to be that way. And so a lot of the work that I do is coming in and working with people on how they can make it so it's not like that. And what's happened is, is because we live in a world where people really feel pressure to be innovative, they really feel pressure to bring the new to whatever their job is, I started getting asked a lot of questions about how to do that. How to innovate on the job? 
Yes. Okay. How to, how to, how to just have an idea that's kind of a breakthrough. Just start doing something in a different way. So the, the old cliche, like, how do I start thinking outside the box kind of thing? It, it is exactly the kind of thing. Great. And you know, the phrase innovate or die. And we, yeah. live, we live in an age where people feel that. It used to be publish or perish in the academic world. Right. And now it's this innovate or die experience where people feel like the only way they're going to move up or move forward or get noticed is if they kind of do something amazingly new, if they figure out a new way to do something, whatever it might be. Right. This used to be sort of the, the privileged space of the quote-unquote innovators, the yeah. Edisons, the Fords, people who would just shift everything, paradigm shifters. But now we're supposed to shift the paradigm on a very low level. Okay. Why are it. we supposed to do that? You got me because we're living, we're living at a very specific time in history where the technology has put so much power in the individual's hands. Right here, you and I are in your room, in your house with your computers. We don't have to go to a special studio to record this, right. and you can broadcast it from here. That's you right. This is a very unspecial studio. We're not in my room, <laughs> by the way. That sounds so creepy. Here we are in this dark, damp basement with this weird, rusted bed next to us recording. <laughs> it's an incredibly nice room, I have to say. Very open, spacious. <laughs> but it's still kind of amazing that you don't need access to a 200 or 1,000 foot radio tower. Right. You don't need access to special equipment. This can be done in the home. Yeah, sure. And because we've sort, we've decentralized and democratized the, the work experience, we've also done that to the expectation of anybody can come up with the next disruptive breakthrough concept. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely true. And of course, there is a lot of pressure for that among especially younger people, millennials right now. I feel bad for them because it's kind of like when I was a kid, if you weren't a professional athlete or a rock star or something, that was kind of normal. But now it seems so attainable to come up with the next Snapchat. It seems so attainable to start a website that then suddenly gets millions, or a YouTube channel, for God's sake. You don't even know, need to know how to code a website. That is just you filming, holding your dog, and you're a chick, and suddenly, or you're a dude who's funny, but only in your own mind, and now you got a million subscribers, and you're a celebrity. That's exactly the world they're living in, and the media then finds those people who, who have that luck of the draw success, extols their virtues and then puts added pressure on everybody to just go and do it. Right. And the reality is there's just so much space and the reality is there's a tremendous amount of luck involved. Now there are things you can do to try and find your way to do something that's new and interesting and different, mm -hmm. but the expectation is one of the things that creates so much pressure. And then people start getting into things inside their own heads that cause a lot of problems, whether it be the sense that they think that they're faking it Known as the imposter, the imposter syndrome, syndrome right? yeah, sure. Or whether they feel like they're scared to death that they're going to put it out there and they're going to fail and then they're going to be seen as that failure. Or even if it's just that when you're trying to do a breakthrough, you are stepping into something that's unknown. You're stepping into something that's fundamentally uncertain because nobody's gone there before. Right. And that's an incredibly uncomfortable place for a lot of people. I agree. I, can we touch on the imposter syndrome for a second? Because it's a, it's a theme that we've talked about on the show once or twice, but I think it's really important because... Thinking about it, I get asked about it all the time, and also I definitely have it. I have it some of the time, and I know that there's other people that have it a lot of the time too that I think, wow, why do you have it? And they think probably the same about me or everybody else. Talk about what that is, because when people hear it, they go, oh my God, I have, it's like hypochondria. When, when you go, hypochondria is when you think you have all sorts of diseases that you don't have, you stop and go, oh my God, I have that. The imposter syndrome in a lot of ways comes out of the mindset that you believe everyone else has studied or trained or prepared in a way that you have not. Right. That you fundamentally believe that all of those doubts you have about yourself, no one else has about themselves. And that places you alone in the sense of faking it. And now all of a sudden you're scared to death you're gonna get found out, right? What would be worse than someone pointing at you saying the emperor has no clothes? Right. And so now not only do you feel like you're a fake, but now you're running a lot of fear mm. that you're gonna get found out as that fake and that fear then actually takes away from your ability. So now maybe you're reinforcing that sense of being an imposter right? and you start spiraling down and spiraling down. And all of it is based on a great deal of myth making that you're doing inside your own head. Because the very nature of feeling like an imposter, you don't talk about it. Right, right, because otherwise you would just be a uh a public failure, right, or <laughs> or something like that. Which is the very thing you're afraid of. Right. So you hold it all in, and as you hold it all in, that internal narrative gets stronger and stronger because there's nothing on the outside to combat it. 
why isn't there anything on the outside to combat it? Because it seems like, and, and let's let's use an example so people can follow. The classic example, I think it's one Olivia gave, but it's one I definitely had, is when I got into law school, I was like, oh my God, I'm definitely the dumbest guy in the room. Like everybody here is just a, is brilliant, they have great grades, I slipped through the filter, this is great, I don't wanna say anything. I'm not gonna go to the dean and go, by the way, I think there's been a terrible mistake, you should kick me out, can I have my deposit back, right? No one's gonna do that. But then you sit there and you think, I, I gotta be quiet, I can't talk about this stuff, I have to study harder, and when you're studying, not because you think you need to get it done, but because you think if you don't, you're gonna fail, that's not really healthy. Well, let's think about this. So without embarrassing you, where did you go to law school? I went to the University of Michigan. Trust me, it's gonna be tough to embarrass me. I've talked about this a lot. Okay, good to know. So University of Michigan, excellent law school, top 10 law school. So you're coming in with a sense of what that means, right. who else applied, what your own sense of your chances of getting in were. So if you're coming with that, and then all of a sudden you're sitting in the room. Now you're sitting in, let's say, the orientation room and there's whatever, 200 of you or whatnot. Yeah. And you're looking around. Now you have no information except what you know about the admissions process. And so you're looking around and you're assuming everyone in here must be absolutely brilliant. Right. Now right there, this is the internal myth-making. You have nothing to base that on. No. You're just, right there, you already set yourself up in a false paradigm. Everyone in this room is brilliant. I'm lucky to be here. Right. It seems like it should be the other way around. Like, wow, I must be really brilliant. I got in. But that was not what was happening in my head. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Um, there are these stories that go around about the first time the Dalai Lama heard the phrase self-loathing. And it was translated for him. And he, he stopped the conversation. He said, can you translate that again? And the translator said, self-loathing. And the Dalai Lama again shook his head. And he said, this, this has to be a mistranslation. How, how is it possible for the self to loathe the self? Mm -hmm. And so there's a way in which we in the, in Western modern society have, and this is something that the, uh, the Dalai Lama's English, main English translator, uh, was saying in a recent visit to San Francisco that in Western modern society, we have externalized our sense of who we are. We have placed it on everything outside of ourselves. And what that does is that leaves us very much at the whim of what's going on outside mm -hmm. of us. So we feel as positive about ourselves as our job, our car, our school, our spouse, our money, sure. whatever it may be. And when that happens, we start looking around at all these external things and it's never enough. Right. We haven't done well enough, we haven't done good enough, and then that self-loathing comes in. And so now if you're holding that sense of, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, nothing around me shows it, now you get, so you get into law school, and instead of being like, look, I got into law school, aren't I wonderful? It's no, I got into law school, I'm probably the least qualified person here, I'm probably the least wanted one here. Right. And then, and then comes that fear, oh God, I'm gonna get found out. So I'm just gonna shut down, I'm not gonna talk about it, I'm gonna be really quiet about it, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna slip by because they may have made a mistake, but I'm the beneficiary of that mistake. Right. And so now we've got the self-image of being as being the beneficiary of a mistake. Right. So there's guilt attached to that too. Exactly. <laughs> Dang. This is a big that's a nasty um what do you call phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. That's Absolutely. that's terrible. Uh, that derailed the conversation no, really well. Well, I, well, one of the things that comes out of that, though, is that you people end up not focusing enough inward in order to find a, a strong basis for themselves inside, so that all of a sudden, if you got into the University of Michigan Law School and you had this sense of who you were, your own solidity, you'd be like, yeah, I got into the University of Michigan because I'm a good student. Of course I did. Right, I'm smart. Right. I don't know many people like that. No, well, we don't have, we, the modern West doesn't really spend a lot of time saying, you should look inward. <laughs> right. It's not really a theme that comes up. Yeah, the, the only people at law school that I knew of that I was friends with, because I don't want to lump everyone in, who was like, yeah, of course we got in here, were either really arrogant, and they would say that about anything they did. Like, of course I'm the smartest person in the class. Was, there was a lot of that. But there were a lot of folks there that, that were clearly really, really intelligent that were like, yeah, you know, we're, I'm so glad that I got in. I mean, there were a few people who were probably false humble, like they got into every top 10 law school except for, you know, Harvard or something like that, and they were like, screw it, Michigan's cheaper. I don't know. 
Um, but they didn't talk about that much because they, if by that point you either have enough sense or you're completely socially inept, I would say, uh, at the law school level. There's a lot of that. So it, it seemed like everybody had that same sort of imposter syndrome, at least in my circle. It doesn't seem to pick favorites. As I said, I do a lot of work with the U.S. Army, and you, you can find this amongst soldiers as well. Soldiers really? who, have, who have been deployed, who have been in combat, who have seen things that you and I can't really imagine. And they come back and feel like they either weren't brave enough or people are assuming things about them or they, um, they could have done more or they, they didn't see anything. They didn't really see hard combat. Right. And therefore, they're a little, uh, so they might be ashamed of that or they were forced to do things in combat that now they feel like I'm not a good person. Mm. And, and all of a sudden these effects come in again of the self-loathing. There's definitely that. It's even in the movie American Sniper, have you seen that? Yes. Where he's talking to the shrink and it's like, there's something wrong. And he's like, no, no, I just think about all the things I didn't do, all the guys I didn't save, all the guys I didn't get, all the times I missed. And it's like, you're the best sniper that they've ever seen. You know, the, the history making Olympic level type of one of a kind warrior and he was only thinking and that was part of his sort of story right it was that his dialogue was he should have done more there's people out there that died that were better people than him generally and instead of saying now i have to be this really good person he was just like i'm depressed right right which is normal well it's very normal so she because there's this part of our brain that they're finding connected to depression and it's called the default mode network and it's called that because when we're not specifically doing something, we default to it. It's just where our brain goes when you're just chilling out, showering, showering, cooking, taking out the trash, whatever, running, exercising, whatever you do that huh. doesn't, it physically engages you. You have a goal in mind, but you don't really have to concentrate on it. Right. Sort of muscle memory at this point, doing the dishes. Okay. And so your mind defaults to this place. It also happens right as you're falling asleep, right as you're waking up. And one of the, th it's, it's, a, it's a group of, people aren't really sure, anywhere from like nine to 12 different brain networks, brain huh. regions that are okay. all networked together. And, and there are a number of these, what they call intrinsic networks, but this is the main one that people have been studying so far. And what they've discovered is that there's a big part of it that it is involved in metacognition, which is to say your awareness that you are a self. Okay, that's what Skynet gets before it kills everyone. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> it is exactly okay. what happens. It's the ability to actually think about yourself. As, a, as an entity in the world. Okay. And what can happen in depression is you kind of get stuck in a loop in that and you just keep thinking about yourself. And you keep thinking about yourself internally. So again, remember the idea that if you're not talking about feeling like an imposter on the outside, you just get caught in your inner myths about what everybody else is like. Sure. When you get depressed very often, what it is, and I don't know if you've ever spoken to a depressed person, but it's not like you can talk them out of it. It's not like you can right, point no. out all the wonderful things in their life and they're like, oh, you're right, I see it now. Yeah, right. And the reason is because they're literally caught in an internal neural loop in their own brains that is negative reflections on themselves. Right, so is that one of the reasons that they say people who have more of an analytical intelligence tend to be more often depressed because maybe they're thinking about that stuff more than just somebody who's kind of bumbling around? You know, I don't know if we know. I think they... I've read that, but yeah, that exactly. it. It was on the internet, so who knows, right? <laughs> Could have been completely made up. But I do understand that, right? Because I think a lot of people, including myself back in the day, used to be like, I don't understand why people are depressed. I mean, look outside. It's sunny. What do you mean? Why are you sleeping? You're so silly. Just go for a walk. Yeah. You know, everything that makes me feel better when I stub my toe does not cure chronic depression, which I now, obviously, as an adult, understand. But I think a lot of times it seems so pointless, right, to go out and enjoy the sun when, for God's sake, someone's gonna find out I'm unlovable and I'm gonna die alone. Who yeah. cares about going to the park and playing catch, right? One of the things that we've been discovering about the brain recently is that it's very structural. We've been thinking of it as very chemical for the past half century. And and now what we're discovering is it's actually a structure. These, on a very small microscopic level, these are structures that fit together, neurons fit together in a certain ways. And so what you have to imagine with depression is just imagine yourself walking in a circle or maybe through a maze, mm -hmm. and the, it's a trench, and the walls are 20 feet high. Yeah, and they're, okay. and they're smooth walls. You can't, it's not like you can just climb out or take the stairs. And so then somebody comes along and says, it's beautiful outside. And you're like, I'm in this trench. Right. Like it's not that easy. And the trench is self-reinforcing. You just keep walking in it. 
And then you're like, oh, this is... Right, so every time you make a lap around the trench, it gets deeper. Exactly. Right. And then that trench can also be a sense of self-loathing, an imposter trench that you get caught in. And you're just sort of stuck in that. And you're like, you're just spinning in it, spinning in it. Right, and the reason it gets deeper for people listening is because every time you use a neural pathway, it gets stronger. Yes. Right, so if you're continually thinking about this, even if you don't want to be, you're making that stronger, which is why even if when you're trying to quit smoking, if you're smoking, you're just strengthening that neural pathway that says, I enjoy this. Exactly. Right, exactly. Interesting. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Back to the show. And you've written, or you've co-written two books, The Chaos Imperative and Wiring the Breakthrough Brain with Olivia. How do you take this stuff and make it practical for the special forces? I mean, where are they going, oh, well that's my problem, we're all just, we all have imposter syndrome, thanks, here's $100,000. <laughs> Oh, well, actually, I haven't talked about imposter syndrome with the special forces. Okay. Funnily enough. But what it comes down to with the special forces is very often what their mind frame is, or what I call their mind frame. So very often the special forces are asked to act so simultaneously as soldiers, strategists, ambassadors. They're sort of doing all of this at the same time, mm -hmm. as well as uh, MacGyvers. They're just right. trying, they're having to make it up as they go along with whatever they find around them. And they tend to be really, really excellent at this, but as they're starting to be asked to do more on the strategic side of things, they're being asked to get a much broader view 
of the situation they're being placed into. Right now, especially with the special forces, the U.S. government is using them as our kind of proxy army. They're all over Syria right now. We right. just don't really hear about it or talk about it. And that way we don't have to officially right. go to war, but they are extending our political desires through their presence in places. Huh. Okay. And so they have to keep that much larger frame in mind as they take action. And so some of the work I do with the special forces has to do with getting them to understand, well, what is your natural frame of reference? How are you, how are you tending to look at the world in general and what are you missing? What is it that you're not seeing? What are the different elements of the situation you're going into you need to look for and connect? So the interesting thing about this, this brain network called the default mode network is that it's incredibly powerful at associative thinking. And associative thinking is really what's responsible for our breakthroughs. Okay. It, Can you explain what associative thinking is, for example? Absolutely. Associative thinking is when you take two or more things that ordinarily you would not put together and realize that they actually have a connection. So a great example of this in business is comes from the, the Ford Hospital in Michigan. And they were looking for a new CEO. And they went and they hired a guy who had been the CEO of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels. Doesn't seem very related. Doesn't seem very related at all. Until you dig a little deeper and you realize that a hospital and a hotel are both in the business of taking care of their guests. True, okay. And so what happened was by having a completely different point of view, by viewing hotel guests as his customer, as opposed to a patient in ill health, the CEO was able to bring all kinds of innovative breakthrough ideas, very simple ones too. Every room has a folding metal chair in it. When the doctor comes in, they have to sit down in the chair, which puts them at eye level with the patient. Oh. And all of a sudden, malpractice suits went down because people felt a deeper connection with the doctor. He put in an organic garden and a really good cafe and hmm. opened that to the public. And so the, the hospital became more integrated into the community. People would show up there because it was a good cafe. Right. They had a good hair salon there, both for the patients and for people waiting. So all of a sudden you had, and these are all services you'd expect from a hotel. Right, I was gonna say, it's right. like, what's next? But I they're mean, getting placed into get the massage. hospital setting. He also set it up so that when you came in, you basically checked in, like your room is ready. And they took you to your room and they got that time lowered. So it was a quick process, like it would be in a hotel. Right. And all of this changed the way the patients felt about being there. They actually were healthier because they were in a better mood. Sure. And so, but the associative thinking aspect is, well, why would you hire someone who ran hotels to run a hospital? And the breakthrough is that, oh, if you actually realize the connection, you can open up a whole new way of doing something, of looking at something. Okay, and, and how does that apply, for example, on the battlefield? I mean, I'm not stuck on the soldier thing. It's just really interesting. So on the battlefield, it has to do with, well, what are you looking at to take in your information? So one of the things that I've done with the special forces, I'll show them Banksy uh, right. graffiti. Right. And Banksy, the, the British graffiti artist who nobody actually knows who this person is, but Banksy is very political. And some of the graffiti is really interesting where it'll be like a young girl patting down a soldier mm -hmm. who's up against the wall, or it'll be um, a, like a wall in the West Bank and he'll have painted uh, a box in it that has a picture of like a beach. Right, sure, and people looking through it like a window. Exactly, and so the idea is when we when we work with the soldiers to be like, so what would this tell you about the environment you're operating in? What would this tell you about how the people are feeling about the the environment you're operating in? And don't assume that they know that you're there to help them. What if they think otherwise of you? And then you have to work in concert with that to get them to actually start to trust you. And so it's, it's accessing different parts of their brains. One of the programs that I go to at Fort Leavenworth, which is a, a schoolhouse type of place, it takes the soldiers to the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City one of the days. And it's, it's great, you'll have like these 15 Special Forces soldiers staring at a Rothko painting for 15 minutes trying to really see it, like what's going on? What is he doing? And some of them are like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. My kid could do that. Sure. And then you tell them it's sold for $85 million and they're outraged. They're like, Let me, I gotta put my kid to work. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but a bunch of them will look at it and they just kind of keep looking at it and they're sort of taking it in and it's, it's accessing different parts of their brain than they're using ordinarily and it's helping them literally see. And so what that does is it opens up for them, when they're in theater, well, what are you looking at and what does it tell you? What are the other narratives going on here other than the one that you're coming into the situation with? And how can you associate these different pieces together? 
to see it differently. Another example of this, there's something in the, in the military called red teaming. Uh, a guy named Colonel Steve Rotkoff is now running the school. And what they do is they come in and they're supposed to be um, dissidents. They're supposed to look at your plan and say why it won't work, which is right. not typical in a hierarchical right. command control situation. It's like professional devil's advocates. Exactly. And one really good story came out of, this was during the Iraq war, and they had a huge problem, ironically, with the Iraq-Syria border. And they were trying to shut it down, but it's just desert, mm -hmm. and nomads who have moved across it for generations and generations were like, we're not gonna stop trading across this non-existent border, this is our land. Yeah, right, we've been here since before these two countries decided to draw a line through this sand pit. Exactly, and, like, and this isn't our war, so leave us alone. Yeah. and. So the army had been trying to just shut it down, but of course it's impossible, right? We can't shut down our own border with Mexico. How are you gonna shut down this desert border? Right, with Bedouins. And Syria. And so they brought in a red team group to think about it differently, and what they turned around and did is they realized, well, there was one particular tribe that really was apolitical. And really what, what the army wanted was to stop the flow of weapons. They actually didn't care if they were trading salt sure, or yeah, trading cares. whatever it was. And so they, they worked with them and struck a deal and they were like, we'll let you keep doing everything you want to do. Will you help us stop the weapons and the insurgents or alert us? And they said, yeah. And weapons and insurgents entering Iraq plummeted once they did that. So they just looked at it right. completely differently. Because they're incentivized. They said, we'll let you keep doing this. But if we get a whiff of bad stuff, we're going to make trouble for you. So now they're incentivized to help on this in the same area, especially because it's making their own area safer anyway. Exactly. Right. The problem it's is like a is neighborhood that, watch. It's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The problem is is that we don't tend to use this part of our brain that often. Why? We tend to be on task. We tend to be busy. We tend to be goal oriented. Yeah. We. I, I can't be bored. It's, I mean, I, I have been, don't get me wrong, it happens all the time. It's, it drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I need to work on something right. or, or do something. And Because when I was a kid, I used to watch tons of TV, and they felt like, now I'm making, not, not only am I now making up for lost time, but my brain says, where's the input? Yeah. And I've just trained myself to do that. So that's why things like meditation or, or at least just not doing anything are very difficult yeah. for me. And input is important. Input is incredibly important. Um, a neuroscientist named John Cuneos over at Drexel who did, who did the research a little bit ago on what happens when you first have an insight where the right anterior superior temporal gyrus will suddenly just light up with gamma waves Okay, about a quarter of a second before you actually have the insight. So they can actually see you figure something oh, out no way. before you realized you figured it out. How cool is that? Right? And so he was telling me how what they've noticed with people who tend to be highly innovative, highly breakthrough oriented, is that when they walk down the street, they take in everything. They're like looking in windows or looking at cars. They seem highly distractible. I'm that guy. Yes. I look at every, and people are like, you know you just you left your keys back there for the 50th time in a row, and I'm like, the guy in that car was wearing a purple jacket, you know, and that, but I, I can't yep. do normal guy things. Yep. And Olivia and I talk about this all the time. She's, she'll like walk into a pole, literally. She's like, has a very hard time. My wife is like this. She like, I've always joked to her, it's going to say in her tombstone, like, you know, have you seen her keys? Have you seen her phone? <laughs> like, it's just, it's always like, where are these things? Yeah. And it's because all this other information is coming in. And that's mm. really good because that other information is like kindling to your default mode network. It's information that it can start to mix and match. You need that. The problem is, is that because we live in a society that's so goal-oriented, don't waste time, get somewhere, right. externally get somewhere, mm -hmm. when we stop and just take the time to let all of this stew in our brain, which we need to, just like you said, it's like, oh wait, I need to start doing something. Sure. And if we never stop, if we never go off task, our brains never get to go into that default mode, which is where that magical connecting thing is gonna happen. So we can produce ourselves right out of creativity and just turn into essentially like working robots at that point that don't, that's why, so we're not innovating because, but I've got so much email or whatever. Exactly, and most of the people I have interviewed for the book who, who are highly innovative creative types all talk about they have these periods of time where they just stop and they just go quiet. Uh, one guy, Adam Shire, who created Siri, and whether or not Siri drives you nuts, it's still a large step forward. He has a process where if he starts to, he's got an idea and it's like, you can feel it, right? It's just, it's not quite together. And what he does is he goes to bed 
And one of the reasons this works for him is because your default mode network turns on right as you're about to fall asleep. Mm. It's also on when you're sleeping, and then it turns on right as you're about to wake up. Oh, that's that explains a lot. I figure out the solution to, I keep my phone and a notebook near the bed, because I will wake up and go, that's the way I wanna set up this studio, or that's what I wanna ask this guy during this session. And it, it can actually drive me quite crazy, uh, because I'll be working out, eating, and I'm getting all of these ideas that I'm thinking, why well, I spent hours brainstorming this earlier and now it's clear as day. Well, it's uh, so scientifically speaking, you're using the hypnagogic and hypnopompic states in order to gather the information from your default mode network, which just means you're falling asleep and waking up and letting your brain kind of do its thing and giving it space. Right, so it, it needs that, I guess, space or lack of input to then sort of defragment the hard drive. Yes. And arrange everything. So part of the part of the research from John Cunios from Drexler that was so interesting was right before you have that moment of insight, right before those gamma waves go off in your ASTG, your visual cortex in the back goes into, I believe they're alpha waves. You, you kind of go quiet, which means you stop actually taking in visual information. So in order to look huh. inside at what's going on in your default mode network, your brain shuts off your access to what your eyes are taking in in order to really see and think about this internal milieu. <laughs> okay, well, that also explains a lot, right? Like, if I'm re reading, I have trouble doing, not because I can't read, but I'll zone out and start thinking about other things, and I realize, I don't even know what I've, what has been, what am I even doing right now? Because the information, it comes in, I mean, your eyes are physically taking in the information, right. but your brain is not processing it. Right. It's like a scanner that doesn't save the image. Yeah, So, yeah. and this is done so that your brain is marshalling its resources to do this kind of fascinating finding the signal for the noise that mm -hmm. we have evolved to do. So the genius inside your brain happens when you're not trying, which I think almost anybody can identify with. Absolutely. And is there a way to to trigger this because for me it looks like, one, that would be awesome to be able to do this kind of at will. Two, when I have, for example, a, a break in the middle of a day, especially if it's an unscheduled break because I usually don't schedule them, and I eat something slowly or I lay down or I take a shower because it's a hot day and I need like a second shower, all stuff from that morning, earlier that week, whatever, will start to sort of then print. You know, it's like, oh, there's that. Oh, and then there's also this. Oh, I'm gonna do that too. And is there a backlog in, how, in your brain? Can we trigger that sort of release, for lack of a better word? Because if you can do that, then that's gonna trigger a lot of innovation, creativity. There's a lot of engineers that just want stuff to get out of their head, you know what I mean? And, and writers and filmmakers and anybody who, who creates or innovates anything, for that matter, needs to be able to pull the trigger on this. Yeah, there, there's, there is a backlog. There's a backlog for every single one of us. And there are many different ways to access it. There's no one way for anyone. Uh, Einstein famously would spend nights drinking coffee and eating salami and arguing with a couple of his friends all night, very often about philosophy, not about science. Okay. And, this, and then they take long walks through Bern, and this is what led to his theory of relativity. Really? Yeah. <laughs> All of this kind of wandering around, Caffeine random conversation. And, and he actually, the day before he really put it all together, he went to see his best friend, uh, this guy, Michelle Bezos, and he went through his whole thing about time and light, and he was trying to figure it out, and then he just threw up his hands. He's like, you know what? I quit. I'm done. And he walked away. And then the next morning, he shows up. He's like, I've got it. <laughs> so it's it's this incredibly powerful process that we all have access to, and it doesn't mean not working. It's just, there's a wonderful book by uh, a professor from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver named Edward Slingerland that's called Trying Not to Try. That's all about the kind of Taoist concept of how do you get into, it's kind of like a state of flow, but it's it's also slightly different. But how do you get into this state, which would be the default mode network, just sort of engaging itself. Okay. Now, one of the things you can do is meditate. Now, here's the interesting thing. Meditation does not itself put you into the state. Actually, when you meditate, the default mode network gets quieter. Okay, why? That seems counter to what we kind of were just talking about. Yes, I know. So here's what happens. So meditation is known to be helpful with curing depression or helping depression. Okay. 
And if you think about it, if you're depressed and your default mode network is overactive and you're sort of walking through that 20 foot trench over and over and over again, right. what meditation does is it's kind of like, it pulls you out and says, what, what, what is this self that's walking in the circle and digging this trench? What are you doing? And it pulls you out of that so it stops the kind of overactive default mode network. Okay. And they've got, they've done studies where they watch that meditators meditate and the default mode network goes much quieter. However, what meditation does do is it actually strengthens the different brain regions that are a part of the default mode network and it strengthens, strengthens their connections. So you're absolutely right that it would seem counterintuitive that meditating would actually not help with okay. the breakthrough process. But it's just that it doesn't help directly. So when you meditate, your default mode network actually quiets. So you're not doing that mind-wandering associative thinking that's gonna lead to that moment of breakthrough. But what meditating does do is it strengthens both the brain regions that are involved in the default mode network and the connections between those regions, which means it's sort of like working out. Okay. And then when you actually go to do whatever your sport is, or in this case, when you go to mind wander, when you go to actually just space out and let the association stuff happen, your brain is stronger at doing that. There's tighter connections between the brain regions and the brain regions themselves are stronger. Okay. There's another element to meditation which uh, one of the neuroscientists I talked to spoke about, which is that if you think of your brain as a pond, this is a classic kind of Buddhist analogy, and you think of the trying to look down to the bottom, but the surface is rough. Okay. Meditation quiets the surface so you can look down to the bottom. Now, it's not that you're gonna make connections by doing that, but you might see some of the backlog. Okay. That's been building up. Got it. Because it'll quiet what's been going on. Now, one of the things about meditation I want to be really clear about is meditation first came to the United States through Hawaii and it was through the Japanese and it was Zen meditation. Right, where you think about nothing. Exactly. And that's what we all believe meditation is. And what you have to realize is, is there are as many forms of meditation as there are diets. Yeah, well, yeah, there's like, think about a color. And then there's like walking meditation, Zen meditation and exercise based, there's tons. There's tons, and so just for anyone listening, when I say meditation, I just don't want you to get that concept of like sitting on a pillow with your back as straight as can be and somebody walking around getting ready to whack you with a cane. Right, and that's how I just, learned and I hated it. Yeah, and you have to just don't let a thought in, don't let a thought in, don't let a thought in, and then all you can do is think about the thought, and right? That is, that's one form, but that is not, the end all and be all of meditation. And so to just open yourself to the the numerous possibilities of what meditation can be and look like, just I wanna put that out there right now because this okay. happens a lot when I talk about meditation. Yeah, of course. Uh, there are other things that help with this process. And one of them is understanding that it is a time-honored tradition of some of the most innovative, breakthrough-oriented people in history. Over and over again, you read about people, like Darwin would have this his sand walk, and it was about, I believe, a mile-long loop, and he would just walk it when he had a, a problem or a, something he couldn't work out, and he would walk it until he figured it out. Oh, interesting. Right, and so it's its own walking meditation, but it's this, it's this quiet, it's this, many mathematicians talk about doing work in the morning and then taking a long walk and just kind of letting, letting it all settle, letting their brains go. All right, back to the show. I saw a, an infographic or something like that a while ago, and it was like Thomas Edison and Einstein and Thomas Jefferson and I don't even know, like all these famous folks that you've heard of and they looked at their daily schedules because I guess these guys all had like a routines mm -hmm. and they all had varying levels of extra. I mean, most of them had, you know, they didn't go work out. That wasn't a thing, but they would get up and either eat or not eat. They would drink coffee or not drink coffee. But the one striking commonality was they all took walks in the middle of the day. Some of them took like a four hour walk. Some of them took like a 45 minute walk. Somebody took a 20 minute walk, but it was like every day in the middle of the day they took a break, they weren't eating, they were just strolling. Strolling around their, the grounds of their grand manor or just <laughs> walking around town or, or whatever. And now who knows what they were really doing? It could have been like, that could have been just the time where they ran around and had coffee with their friend or grabbed a beer or hit, hit, hit up the brothel or whatever, but they weren't at work. Exactly, and you know, it's Immanuel Kant, father of modern philosophy, would take a walk around the town square every day at lunch like clockwork. He would just do it all the time. He never really left his hometown. 
but he would always take that walk. And the fascinating thing about walking that they've discovered is it's this fabulous middle ground between hardcore exercise, which actually steals oxygen from your brain to bring it to your muscles, and working really hard. Sure. Walking actually is just enough movement that it oxygenates your brain without taking from it. Oh, interesting. Plus, it's that exact physical motion that you don't have to think about. It's learned in your muscle memory, but it's enough that you have a goal in mind, so you quiet that goal-oriented part of your brain and can just let your mind wander off on whatever you've been thinking about. Your default mode network comes on. That's that's super interesting, and of course, obviously we all need a little more DMN in our lives if we wanna innovate and, and create better. So what about some of the other ways that people have, I guess, maybe not directly so attempted to to access the DMN, but there's a lot of new talk now about like psychedelics and microdosing and drugs and even people on Wall Street would do like cocaine to do more work, but it wasn't quite DMN. I think a lot of artists do things like acid and they sort of make similar claims like my genius happens then. Yeah, so <laughs> so I guess I have to start with the caveat. I am not advocating okay. <laughs> drug use, but the research is 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 rather fascinating around this, and the reason is because um, a lot of psychedelics, especially, tend to change the inputs in your brain. So, which is okay. why you might hear a color, or you might see a sound. Huh. And some of the, the some of the studies around psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, have shown that in, with magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin has been shown to be very effective at treating depression. And one of the reasons is because it pops you out of these neural ruts, these neural trenches. It, you you kind of look at the world fundamentally differently because your brain is being used in a very different huh. way. So if depression is doing the same thing over and over and over again in this negative connotation, something like psilocybin has you use your brain in a different way. It also tends to create an experience of awe. And there's a lot of studies that are coming out right now out of UC Berkeley about the power of awe and how it can kind of shift the way that people approach the world. It can give them a sense of purpose and meaning as well when you're dealing with depression, which can be a very self-focused experience. Just, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the circle of I suck, I suck, I suck, which has its own narcissism to it. Sure. When you experience awe, you very often are experiencing it because you're aware that you're a part of something much greater than you. Sure, And sure. so suddenly this I suck thing doesn't have as much power. But the psychedelics, I was talking to to one designer who was working on a car project that shall remain nameless, but it's a very okay. modern kind of car. Gotcha. I'll let you decide which one. Uh, but he told me that the designers for this this very innovative car would microdose LSD. And what they would do is they'd put, let's say, one drop in a glass of water, 10 ounce glass of water, okay. mix it up, and then pour out 10 one ounce shots of it, and all the designers would take it. And he's like, so it's not like you're tripping balls going crazy out there, but he's it's just in the back of your head. You can just feel it. It's a little different. You're looking at the world just a little bit differently. And there's a fascinating book called The Chemical Muse, which is all about um, drug use in the ancient world, in ancient uh, Greece and ancient Rome. And they were doing a lot of mind-altering substances. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, there was partially because there was nothing else to do, but yes. <laughs> but if you if you think about something like the Symposium, which is the Platonic Dialogue about the nature of love, and it's, it's called that, but there are actually lots of symposia back in the day where these men would get together and drink wine and talk about philosophical issues. And the literature says that it's mixed wine. And what we're told is they mixed it with water. But the truth is that wine was actually the medium for most drug intake at the time. And what they tend to do at symposiums, they would put opium in with their wine. And in fact, opium was so prevalent in ancient Greece that they had slang for it. They just referred to it as the juice. Nice. Because if you cut into the opium poppy, it kind of cries, the tears of the poppy that comes out as a liquid. And so that was the juice that they were using. And in fact, there is a very famous philosopher, Empedocles, who was famous for having discovered a plant that made him not very hungry and gave him a lot of energy. Yeah, we all know that plant. Yeah, so, <laughs> and so people would, and but he wasn't, um, he wasn't kicked out for this. In fact, one of his uh, young followers was Pythagoras. 
of the Pythagorean right, theorem. And right. Pythagoras actually went and studied with the Egyptian priests. He, he learned the ancient Egyptian language and studied with the priests. And ancient Egypt actually is, grows a lot of poppy. Sure. And Pythagoras was famous for not only his mathematics, but for his mathematics being a kind of spiritual religion. Huh. So I can see him sitting there with like this right angle and going, what is the quickest way to get from the end of this to the other end? I'm going to drop some acid and see if I can figure this out. It's boom. Very possible. <laughs> they weren't taking acid, but they also, in, in ancient times, they were called root cutters. And mandrake root, wormwood, hellebore, these different, these different roots of plants that were very hallucinogenic. Huh. And people would take them and go into these different states and learn many different things. That's interesting. I, wormwood is uh, is a psychedelic. I didn't realize. I knew it was poisonous. Yes, it's a psych it's a, it's the active ingredient in absinthe. Oh, that's right. Well, when you get real stuff, you know, it's it's a weird factoid that makes no difference unless you're a conspiracy theorist, which I am not. Is uh, wormwood in Russian is Chernobyl, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I I was like, that's not true. And I looked it up, and sure enough, nailed it. That's kind of wild. Yeah, it's really weird. I wonder what that's about. Yeah. I mean, why would you name a town that? And then boom, nuclear catastrophe. <laughs> anyway. But, but so the, uh, so what drugs do very often is they create a highly associative state in your mind and they create a novel associative state. Um, for those of you who may or may not have experimented in your lives, um, you know what that experience can be like when you suddenly put two things together you ordinarily would never put together. And sometimes you sober up and it was stupid. Right. But sometimes you really saw something different and new and interesting. And it's it's about getting you out of that rut of seeing things the same way all the time. And I'm sort of equating it to if you're running electricity through a series of wires and they're all plugged in somewhere, and then suddenly you unplug everything and you plug them into different places, different outlets, that's kind of like what it sounds like the drugs are doing in your brain. They're sort of rewiring and going, Let's use this neural pathway that we've never really paid attention to over here in the corner gathering dust and see what happens. That's part of what they do. The other thing they do is they disinhibit. So your frontal lobes are like your, your grown-ups, your critical parents, and they're the part of your brain that are constantly like, don't do that, they're all gonna laugh at you. Right. And what alcohol does, marijuana does, most, most uh, mind-altering substances is they quiet those lobes. And suddenly you're not worried about being stupid. You're not worried about looking like a fool. You're not mm -hmm. worried about thinking something that's ridiculous. You're not worried about going down a, a useless path. And this opens up the possibilities of what you actually will allow yourself to think about. Most of us, as we go through the everyday, put handcuffs on what we allow ourselves to think. We just don't go very far afield from the structures we live with. And what the taking of mind-altering substances do is literally alter your mind. So you suddenly start thinking about things and connecting things you ordinarily would not. And it's this association that creates the new way of looking at something. Uh, I see. Interesting. I was just going to say that you don't have to <laughs> partake in the mind-altering Burning Man experience <laughs> in order to, to engage in associative breakthrough thinking. Right. Um, one of the things you can do is simply familiarize yourself with what it looks like. Um, the field of biomimicry is a wonderful way to do this. What is that? I mean, I can put it together. Biomimicry but... is this brilliant concept that basically says evolution is a four billion year old research and development project. And that with that much time, nature has probably come up with a lot of solutions to problems that we have, and we can just mimic it. Oh, okay. For example? So let's take the Japanese bullet train. It had a, originally a very blunt nose, and it's going like 200 miles an hour, and it's going through a tunnel. And it would build up hurricane-force winds in front of it, which would come out of the tunnel, break windows of the houses nearby, rattle foundations, and obviously people who are living near these tunnels are like, this is not acceptable. Right, this sucks. Yeah, And so they had to figure out, well, how do we cut down on that? Why would you not make, why would a bullet train have a blunt nose? I, I'm not even an engineer and I'm like, hey, make this a little more aerodynamic, what do you think? <laughs> it's amazing the number of things that we actually have to do and fail at in order to learn from them. It's kind of an astounding experience when you watch that happen in the world. Um, or like I, drill a hole on the other end of the tunnel so it goes upwards instead yeah. of <laughs> blasting out like a rifle barrel. I mean, just a couple of thoughts from a guy who's never designed anything. <laughs> so, so what they did is, in order to solve this problem is they used biomimicry and they looked at the bird, the, a kingfisher, and a kingfisher will dive into the water and make barely a splash. Oh, cool. And so they looked at it the way its beak was shaped and then they mimicked the shape of its beak to the front 
of a bullet train. Let me guess, needle-like? Yes, and but, but also but a little flat, and then it kind of bumps out a little on the sides for the nostrils. Ah. It's, 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 it's a strange-looking thing, Yeah, but it cut down on the problem. And so by just looking at the way nature had solved the problem, they were able to very quickly solve the problem they had in front of them. And that's the idea of, again, of associative thinking. We have a problem with a bullet train. Well, let's look at a kingfisher bird. Why would you ordinarily think that one would solve the other? But they do, and there are actually whole books on biomimicry, and just by reading them, you get a sense of what this associative thinking actually looks like, and it can kind of, it can broaden out your mind. In the same way, there are lots of business stories around this, whether it's Henry Ford getting his idea for the assembly line from watching the um, Armour Meat Packing Company in Chicago and the way that they moved meat down the line. What? <laughs> Say that again? I'm okay. not sure I picked up on that. So. The idea of an assembly line is the worker stays where they are and the product moves along and the worker does the one thing on the product over and over again to speed up the process of assembly. So the associative thing that Henry Ford did was when he was watching a meat packing plant in Chicago, he noticed how the carcasses moved down the line and then people would cut one, workers would cut one piece. They did one thing. Now this was a disassembling, not an assembling, okay. but it's the same concept. And so he took that, again, associated that, and said, well, why don't I just move the car down the line like that? Oh, right, I see. I, I, I'm There's a problem where I was trying to envision that. I'm like, what are you talking about? But I can imagine, right, they hook, and they're like, my job is I take the front of this thing, and that's all I do. Yes. And I don't have to think about, there's no cognitive issues. I don't have to be a master of this whole thing. Exactly. I can just get really good at automatically doing one small part of this. And that's, yeah, that's how they built cars. I'm from Detroit, so I know I've seen uh, right this on. with my own eyes, you know, a million years ago. And so once you, once you realize that that's what associative breakthrough looks like, you start to realize you can look at anything around you in the world and say, well, can I apply that to the issue I'm facing right now? Right. How does what I'm looking at right now inform the way that I could find a solution? to something else, because solutions are all around us. They just have to be put in a new context. It's kind of like the foundation for the, the whole business of the Art of Charm, because back eight years ago when we started, we were like, how do we take the principles of meeting cool people and girls and turn this into like getting jobs and business opportunity? And we found like a 90 plus percent overlap, if you had to quantify it, to, well, you start conversations and then, you know, you get people to enjoy your company and like and trust you, and then they'll, I, the, that's where the split happens. It's not in the beginning, it's, it's at the end, Yeah. right? And selling people something is the same and uh, creating something that people enjoy and experience people enjoy is the same or meeting somebody and dating them is the same, making a new friend, for a new buddy is the same up until kind of the, the last portion of it. And so what you did with that realization is very similar to going back to the beginning when we were talking about the CEO of Ritz-Carlton who then became the CEO of the hospital. And what you realize is, is where there they discovered, oh, taking care of guests, taking care of patients, there's right. a similar thing. You realize, oh, talking to women and talking to a potential client was actually a very Same similar thing. process. And by putting those two together, you're able to actually associate them and then create this kind of breakthrough idea. Fantastic. And so, and, and we find this in so many different ways. That, you know, where does snowboarding come from? It came from a kid who wanted to keep practicing skateboarding, but in the winter. And so snowboarding is just skateboarding, but on snow. Right, on snow. But yet, when you think about it, you're like, well, duh, how is that new? How can that, how can how, that How could new? that have been new? Right. It right? seems like that would have come before skiing, quite frankly. And yet? Nothing. No. 1980s or seven, maybe 70s somewhere? Yeah. I don't know, actually. So life is full of these things, and life is full of us missing them. There's a famous story from about 100 AD in Alexandria, Egypt, where a, a guy named Hero, that was actually his name, um, built a little steam engine. Basically, it was a little ball, a metal ball with two nodules on either side of it, and it was inside a water basin, and water would come up these little hollow tubes into the ball, because it had been heated, and so the steam would go up the tube, sorry, into the ball, and then it would come out the nodules on either side, and it would spin. This was everything you needed to know about steam power, but it was treated like a toy. Nobody thought to do anything with it. Oh, that's so weird. And so nothing happened. Right. And there are all kinds of things going on all around us that people just aren't taking it to the next step. How long did it take before somebody went, hey, you know that toy that that guy invented a million years ago? We should totally put that in a huge machine and have it towed thousands of tons across the country. Uh, we didn't really get to that till the 1700s, so about 1600 years. Wow. Yeah. That seems unbelievable. It happens all the time. I mean, the same way the Romans created concrete and then we, we lost the recipe. 
I've heard that even things like Damascus steel, you can't make it now. Yeah. Even or you just maybe they just figured out how to make it again and even these but like these old it's like Game of Thrones, right? Like no <laughs> one can make this kind of steel anymore and yet it's stronger than anything that we could have made and it, with all of our modern processes is much stronger. It, yeah. it just seems weird because the only tools they had were raw brute force and like things to heat things. Knowledge gets lost all the time. It's it's kind of an amazing thing when you look at it, especially in today's day and age where we seem to record everything. But then you just imagine what would happen if there were some sort of massive solar flare completely wiped out the grid, society fell apart, and it built itself back up, but we didn't have access to all of this data. Right, no, it's very true. I mean, think about think about it. If you had a small number of people sample size, you'd pick a doctor, probably a good idea, and a few other craftsmen, but you might not pick the guy who's like, I'm really damn good at mixing certain kinds of paints that are weatherproof. You'd be like, yo, you're so far down the totem pole to get on Noah's Ark, buddy. <laughs> right? But like, in a few hundred or a thousand years, like, damn it, everything, keep, the water keeps coming in or whatever, yeah. right? And you need that, you gotta start over. Yeah, and it's, yeah, at this point, if you're listening and you've started spacing out a little bit or you're thinking about other stuff we've said, right. that's actually a really good thing. You're, ac you're accessing this default mode network. Great, you're welcome, by the way, for being <laughs> just boring enough. Well, but, it's, not, it's not boring, it's just that if something we've said along the way was very interesting and sparked something, then all of a sudden what we're saying, we become sort of background noise because again, the external information gets shut off so that the internal experience can happen and it's that internal experience that really leads to the opening, the breakthrough. Well, that might be a great place to sort of start to wrap things. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanna make sure you send home with the audience? Oh my God, Olivia, my co-author is gonna kill me because um, I don't have anything to say to that. It's a great question. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I, guess, I guess the thing I would say, Harry, I'm redeeming myself. Uh, I guess the thing I would say is that we were talking about earlier, why don't more people do this? Right. And I think one of the things to really get your head around is that while we live in an age that is demanding breakthroughs, we live in an age that paradoxically refuses to allow us the time to achieve them. <laughs> Certainly true. And to, to really work to allow yourself the, the downtime, the quiet time, to allow your brain to do this kind of masterful genius thing that it does that we've evolved to do on our own and not get in the way and not feel like you're wasting time. It's not that every time you space out, it's not that every time you mind wander or daydream, you're gonna suddenly realize the answer to your problem. But the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. The more you get out of your own way, the more you try not to try, the the more productive these, these times will become. And you have to kind of start trusting in that and give yourself over to this. And, and also take in varied information. One of the things you can do is read a book you would never read in a million years. Watch a movie completely outside your normal milieu or documentary. Bollywood. Yeah, right? really, just, and that's why travel is so powerful. Just yeah, good point. Go and experience or take in information you ordinarily wouldn't, not for its, it for its own sake, but so that you have a wider breadth of possible associations that will help you see something really new, really different, because it's in this, it's in this cauldron of combining that your next breakthrough is gonna happen. And if you can't afford that, just take a bunch of drugs, right? <laughs> no, I'm, not right. <laughs> just I, kidding. I will neither confirm nor deny that that is a good idea. Yeah, I should not have ended on that, but I did anyway. That's what's happening. Thank you so much, Judah. This is awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Super interesting show. I love the idea of hacking the genius inside your mind. Imposter syndrome, everybody's got it, especially me. And the default mode network. We all know we've used it, we all know we see it, and when it happens, we're like, oh my God, that, right? When you're running, when you're showering, uh, probably when you're cooking, sometimes when you're eating. And I love the idea that we can turn on that genius engine in our brain that we can access at will. Uh, of course, the drugs thing, again, we don't advocate that stuff, but it is interesting to look at the science and biomimicry and using nature to solve modern human problems is something that seems kind of obvious and yet still we're finding out how to use that to our advantage. So I hope you guys dug this one as much as I did. Of course, show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy, it's run by you and we rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. 
So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Judah on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show. I also post a lot on Twitter, stuff that never makes it to the show, articles, insights, and other stuff. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And boot camp details for our live programs, remember, we're sold out five to six months in advance, so even if you're thinking a little bit, get in touch ASAP, get that info, get the ball rolling, and plan ahead, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And of course, on the website, not only is the blog with tons of amazing articles, but also our bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those who just can't get enough AOC. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 